Welcome to Brave Dynamics. This is your host, Jeremy Yao. Leadership is harder than it looks. As a proven founder and Harvard MBA, I interview courageous entrepreneurs, executives, and investors every week. I also share my frontline experiences, coaching insights, and own professional development journey. If you're stepping up as a new leader, founding a startup, or venturing into the great unknown, this is the podcast for you. Hua Yiqian is the owner of Jackal and Hyde, one of Singapore's premier cocktail bars. The bar has been featured in various publications such as Channel News Asia, The Business Times, and The Straits Times. He's also currently a manager in the investments and new business team of Grab, where he works on special projects for the Grab Financial Group. Yi Chen was previously the head of vehicle solutions for Uber Singapore, driving the acquisition and retention of drivers. He started his career as an analyst trading equity derivatives at Goldman Sachs. Yi Chen has a Bachelor of Arts in Communications from Brigham Young University. He is passionate about food, finance, technology, and travel, and is fascinated by how the four subjects can blend and weave themselves with one another in this interconnected world. You can connect with him at www.linkedin.com slash in slash Chua. Hey, Chen, Good to see you again. Hey, Jeremy. Good to see you. I'm super excited to share your journey as a hustler in so many domains uh, with the rest of the world. Exciting stuff. I'm happy to be on. Thanks. Thanks for taking the time. You know, for those who don't know you, how would you share your journey so far? Uh, well, that's like a very broad question, but let's see. Currently working at Grab, own a bar on the side. Spent the past few years in tech. I was at Uber before that and then was in finance at Goldman before that. I studied public relations, which is completely unrelated to anything I've done since then. It's been quite the journey. And I guess to mention, since I've been at Grab, I've been focused on their uh, financial group. So kind of taken a, a full circle back into the financial space. How did you personally get started in technology? Technology, that was really interesting, actually. So I never expected to be in finance and I never expected to be in technology. My career has actually kind of taken its own funny twists and turns. And I really think it's one of those things where you look back in life and you say, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty, or you can only connect the dots backward, right? That like Steve Jobs said. So jumping into tech was something that I didn't really think about, but it happened about four years ago. So I was at Goldman in the US and I was uh, trading equity swaps and CFDs. Kind of realized like after a while that it was just wasn't something that I wanted to do. So I just started looking at all the tech firms. And I mean, you know, back then in 2016, tech was all the rage. I mean, it still is, but especially then. And so I was like looking at companies like Facebook, Uber, Google, and all that, Pinterest, and trying to apply for those companies. But it was actually really hard, especially when, you, when you're like on, a, on the H1B1, it's harder to get companies to sponsor you sometimes. And that's like the visa for, for working people in the U.S., so I started to look at the same companies, but back in Singapore. And it was also the time for me to move back. My parents are getting a bit older. I've been away for quite a while. So when one of my friends that I interned with at Bloomberg uh, posted about jobs at Uber, he applied and went through the interview process. I was really lucky. I mean, Uber hired mostly bankers and consultants. So my boss was an investment banker. My boss's boss traded the exact same product by Credit Suisse. His boss was an FX trader before that. So it was helpful in the sense that people had the same background. And it was helpful when I you know, applied and then got the job. 
I'm at Uber. And since then, I've kind of stuck in this tech space. Although some people will argue that ride hailing isn't tech, but you know. What was your first day at Uber like? So I actually started a week early. So my boss was like, hey, can you come in a week early? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I came in a week early and he said, oh, the project that you're supposed to be on or that I wanted you to work on isn't ready or it's not something we're going to do anymore. So he's like, all right, well, you can go and do something else. And he was kind of busy. Eventually he's like, hey, we've got this like hourly rental program. Can you go figure this out? And I was like, what hourly rental program? But um, it was actually the genesis of like what I eventually did at Uber and what I built out in Uber, which was our vehicle solutions team. So that was an interesting first day, an interesting first week, interesting few months. I always tell people I learned more at Uber in three months than I did at two years at Goldman just because it was such a steep learning curve as well as so many things that they just wanted you to do at the same time. What were some things that you learned at Uber? So Uber had these values back then. They've changed it since then. But it was uh, what Travis came out with uh, back then. A few of them that really stuck out to me, and I think what I've learned really are values, right? I think that's the first bit. But then the second bit is obviously like, you know, what skill sets and all that. But one was always be hustling. I was just like, you just always have to be hustling and like trying to get things done and get shit done. And that was kind of like the informal motto, right? Almost because you're just trying to get things out as quickly as possible and iterate and test. And then, and we were trying to build to quote unquote, like dominate a bond or like conquer the world back then. Right. So that's definitely one. Another one was like big, bold bets, which was like always just taking these like super big bets, which cost us a lot of money, but again, it wasn't my money. So I guess it was okay. <laughs> and then uh, there was one that I really liked. Uh, my favorite is uh, be an owner, not a renter. And it's a really good one that I think I've taken to heart, um, whether I've been, whether at my current job or whether I actually own a business, being an owner like just really means like doing everything it takes to solve a problem or to get things done. So I think that's from the value side. From a skill set perspective, Uber was going at like a crazy run rate at that point, right? We were competing with DD, we were competing with Grab. These were all times when Uber had not sold off anything yet and they were just like fighting in multiple markets. And the main goal was to get market share and to generate as much revenue as possible. So Learning how to test and pivot and iterate, these are all phrases that people use in the tech space, but it's something that we truly did, right? We're like, crap, we are not getting enough drivers. We're only getting like 50 drivers a day. We need 100. What are we going to do? Do we throw more money at them? Do we like figure out how to retain more drivers? And so being able to roll with the punches is, is probably something that I learned from an early time at Uber and that has helped me, I think, ever since in my career and uh, in my own business. You know, talking about your own business, so you're the owner of the popular Jekyll and Hyde, which is an amazing place that I love to take my friends and tech acquaintances to as well. So I guess it's from my paycheck to your paycheck there. Tell us more about how you got started on your own business. Yeah. So Jekyll and Hyde, I actually found it online on a website for sale. So it's on this website called businessesforsale.com. And I literally was just like scrolling through the businesses for fun, I like to scroll through random pages on the internet, which is probably like a bad thing because you always spend too much time on random websites or like buying random things that you don't want. And case in point, buying a bar that you don't really need. <laughs> it's an established cocktail bar in Tanjong Paga for sale. And I looked at the photos and I was like, oh, it's Jekyll and Hyde because it was right around the corner from the Uber office back then. And then I looked at it and uh, I was like, hey, this might be interesting. So back then I had a business partner. And I was like, hey, do you, are you interested in this? And then we went and talked to the current the owner then found out why they were selling they basically there were three of them but two of them had gone to start this pre-ipo seed funding company called Fundnell. and there was like one guy left who was kind of uh just like running the show and he was like i'm married now and i don't think i should be doing this anymore so bought the business over from him so the long shot of it was it was an impulse buy which was yeah i'm never impulse buying things like that again it was not a cheap impulse buy let's put it that way 
Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, just this past week, I've had two friends who were interested in exploring what it means to buy a business, uh, kind of like a search fund, and then look to turn it around and keep going. What do you think about that? You know, there really is value in that, right? I mean, it's almost like PE, where I guess you're trying to find businesses that could have value or should have value, and they just happen to not have the full value at the moment. And I think when I bought it, I didn't have that intention. My intention was to purchase it as alternative investment where I would get different returns in a different way while having fun at the same time. But it turned into both fun as well as a hellish nightmare, depending on the week or day or month or year, right? And COVID's definitely been a part of that. But that's not a bad idea. There are a lot of businesses that I think if they just had the right management would actually do really well. And I've started to see that not just with my own business um, and being able to figure out how to run it more efficiently and better, but also just once you own a business, you get a lot of opportunities to see other people's businesses from a more granular perspective. And you see things that you say, hey, if I ran this business or if I did this, I could do X, Y, and Z too to make it better, right? So that's definitely value it, but you have to find the right operators. And operations is key, I think, to any business. Like, it doesn't matter how cool or sexy or whatever you are, you'll eventually run out of money, right? We've, we've seen that in uh, multiple uh, investments by that very big Japanese investment firm. So so would you walk us through it, right? So you were scrolling, window shopping for businesses, and you ended up buying a company that you felt fit your lifestyle, and you thought that was an opportunity to take over, and it was nearby. Was there a gap between your expectations going in versus the actual reality of running the business? Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like all those like memes, right? It's like expectation and reality. Yeah, like completely different, right? You think it's just super cool to own a bar and then you just go in there and drink and all that. But there's a lot more to it, right? Because when you're actually owning it, you're running the business. And, and you got to realize that you're the one that owns it, not your employees, right? And unless you, even if you give them equity, it might not change it, right? I mean, at the end of the day, there are people who are working for a paycheck and some of them will go way above and beyond and some of them just won't. Um, and so at the end of the day, the only person you can really depend on is yourself as much as you do depend on some of your like really good employees. But I think that the reality is that running a business is hard, right? You have to make sure that your revenue is more than your costs. And that's a lot easier said than done because people don't realize there are a lot of hidden costs. I mean, people think, man, if you go to a restaurant and you get fries for $10, sure. I mean, there's a larger markup on it, but it's not like the restaurant's making $10, right? The restaurant's only actually making maybe like a dollar or $2. And you don't realize that. You just think, wow, that's like $8 more than I would pay if I just fried the fries at home, right? But you don't consider the rental and the manpower and the utilities and the grab rights home for the employees and the oil they have to buy consistently for the fries. There are so many different factors that people don't uh, take into account until you, you actually own a business. What do you feel are the misconceptions around having a side hustle like this? So I read an article from Falcon Post, I think, or something like that about these guys who run Aloha Poke that they have their full-time jobs and then they run it as a side hustle. I guess one thing was that they had a few more people, but I think more than that is the side hustles. I mean, I don't know. It really depends, I guess. I mean, this side hustle is particularly hard. I think you could probably have an either side hustle. For example, if you were a really good designer or artist and you did like one project a week, it might be a bit easier to manage, right? Because you are able to manage the workflow that's coming in as opposed to a bar, like an F&B business, it has to run or will not survive, right? So I think side hustles are quite broad. There are very different types of side hustles that you can choose, right? Your side hustle can be F&B, your side hustle can be running a construction company, but your side hustle could also just be baking on the weekends, right? So I think it, it really is different depending on how you look at it. That's true. I mean, for me, my side hustle is this podcast. And for you, your side hustle is this incredible community and convener, and more recently, you've 
been on the news for going through uh, the death and resurrection story for Jekyll and Hyde, which must have been incredibly difficult. Could you share a little bit more about the trial and adversity there and how you overcame it? Yeah, I'll try and keep this concise. Jekyll and Hyde was always doing okay. Like, it wasn't doing amazing. Like, I think people always think, oh, it's busy on a Friday or Saturday. And I'm just like, man, if it was not busy on a Friday or Saturday, we would be dead, right? And then people don't look at the Mondays to Thursdays where you're you're actually not as busy. So, I mean, the, the point around that is it was going okay, but nothing amazing. And then COVID hit. And when COVID hit, it was a very quick succession of crazy things that happened, right? First, they were like social distancing, then all bars have to shut down, then everything shut down, right? And so being able to figure out how to survive through that was, I have to say, the tech background is what helped. Because at Uber, it was that if something failed, you had to try something the next day. It wasn't you try something in two weeks, you just try something the next day to try and hit those same numbers, right, that you want to. And so for us, it was like, okay, let's make sure that we have the requisite like food requirements so that we can stay open, even though we're a bar, but we're also a restaurant. Um, And then when we shut down completely, it was like, we have to go to bottle cocktails. If not, we just don't have any revenue, right? So when we were doing that, at the same time, we had issues for our landlord, where basically the landlord wanted us to continue paying the same rent. Eventually, they got it down to like 60% of the then current rent. And then we were going to go ahead with that. But when we asked to... Um, for some a bit more favorable terms and conditions. They were like, no, you have to sign a personal guarantee if you want to do this with us. And I'm like, no, I'm not signing a personal guarantee. Like, I'm not stupid. I did it back then because business was fine, but I'm not going to do this COVID. And at the end of the day, you have to, I guess, at a certain point, cap your losses, right? And I think they didn't expect us to do that. And I was just like, yeah, no. Can I swear on this podcast? I'm like, F you, right? So in the same way, I also went back and was like, okay, well, F you, you know, and we decided to terminate the lease. And I think when that happened, we just, I didn't have any like energy left to a certain extent. Like if you wanted to find a new place at that point, like you would need capital, right? And I just didn't want to inject any more capital. And obviously you weren't going to get any investors right at that point because (laughs) everyone was trying to just like keep the heads above water. So we were like, okay, we're going to shut down. But when the news article from uh, Channel News Asia came out that said that we were going to shut down, we got a huge outpouring of support where people were just like, oh my gosh, that bar is closing. We love you, but what can we do and all that? And people started reaching out, right? One, people were ordering our bottle cocktails more. But more importantly, people were like, hey, do you want to collaborate with us? Do you want to work with us? Do you want to rent this space? I mean, so it gave us a lot of opportunities where we could find better landlords and better people to work with to be able to do that. And that's, I mean, as it continued on, I think the journey was how we were able to get out of the particularly deep rut that we were in and actually survive the day. So how did the press article for Chen News Asia come out? Did, was it uh, you reaching out? Was it someone looking for a story? My friend wrote, runs this other FMB called uh, Gasso, but he his friend was a reporter and she was just trying to find articles about businesses that were closing. So I think ours was interesting because it wasn't just closing because of COVID, but it was a combination of COVID and like a shitty landlord. So I think it became a more interesting story for her. And I think people also felt for us because we were in that situation. And I mean, look, like people, when they see other people are getting shafted, they generally are pretty supportive, right? Even if you don't know the person or business. How do you feel about that? Because, you know, many businesses, not, they're not sure about press, right? Obviously, press about a good story that's good. But you were sharing a story about impending slash failure of the company in the bar. You know, was it scary? Did you feel like, you know, people were going to say like, oh, boo, <laughs> you're a failure in Asia. Oh, were you worried about that? Or? No, not really. I mean, at the end, at that point, it was just like wit's end, right? It's like, you know, what else am I going to do? I mean, 
it's that whole thing where whenever you ask someone something, the worst is they say no, right? And I think for me, it was just like, yeah, it's a learning experience for people. Anyways, it's a good question. I guess not really. I'm not very shy about my failures or shy about my experiences. And it's not just a matter of sharing it. I'm just like a sharer. So I guess not not shy about that. Why do you think you're not shy about sharing about your failure? Because you and I both know that that's not common in Singapore or Southeast Asia. Yeah, combination of background and personality, right? I mean, if you want to believe MBTI, ENFP, right? So it's quite extroverted anyways already. More of a feeling more perceiving than just like kind of I'm not a very logical person right so I'm a more emotive person so I guess that's one one key part of it but the second thing is I guess my background I mean I was in local school for years but then I went to the American school here for high school and then was in the states for another seven years so I think that culture or that community is more open to people sharing those kinds of things and I guess since I was used to that and even at work back at Goldman at Uber I guess I just felt relatively comfortable with sharing these things. People get scared, right, about sharing their failure because they feel like people are going to judge them. You're interesting because you're saying that you don't feel that same, your wit's end, you know, so why not? But still, like, there's still that granule of fear, right? Have you seen any benefits, I guess? Let's say you feel the fear less, but do you see any benefits from sharing about failure? I think people are willing to help when they see your failure. The only person that's being affected is you, right? Like it might be eating you or it might be depressive for you or whatnot. And I think when you share it, not only is it an outlet, I mean, different people have different outlets. For me, it's an outlet. But secondly, yeah, you do get people who are willing to help, right? And then you do have people who are willing to be encouraging and, and cheer you on. And so for me, it's never been something that I've been uncomfortable with, I guess. I mean, I don't know. I guess I've failed enough times where I don't really care. I mean, like, for example, I did so badly in the local school system, I had to go to American school, right? It wasn't because my parents were like, oh, let's go and pay like a crap amount of money for him to go to that. It was because I was like failing, right? So I think I've had enough failures in my life where it's not a sense of pride, that's for sure, but it's not a sense of shame either. What's interesting is that out of this, you've also been someone who has organized a lot of community. So I'm part of multiple WhatsApp threads that you have created for technology people, for people interested in current affairs, for people who want to invest. And it's interesting to see that focus you have around community. What do you think drives that and you know your informal leadership in the tech scene here? To be honest, the reason why I started the, the group chat originally was because I wanted more people to come to the bar. <laughs> it was one of my pivots or like one of my tactics, right? To, to strategize and see if I could get more people to come into the bar. And the first few months, it was actually very quiet, right? And I think I, I started the chat. And then like the first time people came, we had four people that came. And that was a total of five of us. And then the next month, it was like 10 people. And then some people were like, why don't you just share this with more people? And I was like, oh, okay, why not? So I just said like, hey, anyone in the chat, please invite your friends. And then I posted on LinkedIn and stuff like that and all that. And we started to get a lot of people to join until the, the group was full. And I was like, oh, crap. But it was really interesting because the thing I like about, and what I eventually really liked about building these communities is, you get to meet a lot of people. I mean, I basically met you through through that too, right? I think. And also, I'm a member of this organization called Streets Clan, and they do something similar. And the genesis or like half of the idea to reignite the, the really small group chat I had was that. I was like, oh, people are talking about tech and talking about food and all these different things. And I was like, why can't we do this with Jekyll and Hyde too, right? And then we had a colleague from Grab come and speak and all that. Like 60 people came at that point. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. This is more than just like trying to get customers to the bar. It's about like trying to connect people, right? And bring them together. 
And I think people do want to have those outlets, right? They don't have a formal one and they don't want to go to one that their company has organized. They want to do it like casually, right? And I think this is a very good outlet for people to kind of casually network and get to know other people. And it's been fun. Like my food group, they organize themselves and they're like, oh, who wants to go try this? I think they had a couple tables of people that were eating Eurasian food at some restaurant the other day. And it was great. It's just like fun. And I know some of them have become like really good friends with each other because of that. So I think it's been really interesting and cool to see. Now, one thing I've noticed is that one of your passions has been good food and, you know, the community around food. I'm just kind of curious how that got started. I mean, I just like to eat, right? Like, I mean, I enjoy food. My parents have always been relatively adventurous. So I've eaten like most foods as part of that. You know, when I was in college, you, I had to fend for myself. I had to cook for myself because I wasn't living. I was living in like the dorms, which were apartment style and not like the dorm food, which is both good and bad, I guess. I mean, so like it becomes interesting, right? Like one, you want to be able to cook cheaply, but you want to cook interesting food. I mean, it's a whole plethora of things, right? I think for, for me, food is two things. One, I just enjoy to eat. And then the second, it's a good way to to bring people together. And I really enjoy communing with people over food. And that one's just natural. You make it sound like you bought this uh, Jekyll and Hyde bar as if, you know, you made it as a window shopping impulse purchase. But it's interesting that... At the end of the day, it still synchronizes with two of your passions, right? Which is like, you know, food and beverage, as well as the chance for community and bringing people together. So, you know, how do you feel about that? You know, like, you know, buying a business that's a passion. I've never thought about it that way, actually. Yeah, that's a good question. Maybe that was part of the original goal, right? Like being able to just hang out with friends at a bar that I owned. But I think it became more than that. And I, I think to your point, it became more of a community thing. And being able to meet people. I guess by default, I am a generally extroverted person that wants to like meet different people from different walks of life. And it's interesting to me and all that. So, I mean, it was an impulse buy. I could have done an impulse buy that was cheaper, I guess. Or I could have started a hawker stall or something like that. I don't know. I'm sure that's been another way to build community around it. But it just so happens that it, it happened that way. So one of the things I'm probably good at and the reason why I what I'm doing is I'm comfortable with ambiguity. And I think a lot of people aren't, right? Like my dad is, but my mom is very like rigid, right? Like she wants to work at a certain company and blah, 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 and stuff like that. I remember when I told her that I was quitting Goldman to work for Uber, she said, you know what? You're quitting to join a taxi company? I mean, she didn't know much about Uber back then either, right? Still doesn't, I think. But yeah, I think it's the ambiguity actually makes a big difference or that comfortable being comfortable with ambiguity makes a big difference. And I think that's why a lot of people stick in their careers or their jobs or whatnot or their lives because they're uncomfortable with having things not happen the way that they want it to. Whereas I think for you and for me, we're, we're more comfortable with that kind of feeling or that trajectory. Trajectory, right? That's such a hard you know, question that everybody thinks of themselves, right? Which is like, am I on the right path? Yeah. Am I going to keep going? Oh, I'm going down. Am I going up? I'm sure you've met a lot of people who ask you that question, right? You know, like in their jobs, they're thinking about exploring new side hustles. How do you respond? What advice do you give to them who are thinking about that trajectory? To caveat and to be upfront about it, I have no idea what the hell I'm doing with my life right now. I'm having this like existential like midlife or I don't know, whatever you want to call it. I'm not 40 yet, I guess. Midlife crisis of trying to figure out what I want to do. And honestly, I don't think grab is the end-all be-all. And I don't think the bar is the end-all be-all either. Right. And I'm trying to figure that out. But to answer your question to people who want to like change trajectory or they want to do that, I can give you a blanket answer. I've been blessed in the sense that I think 
my background's like comfortable. And so like, if I've always wanted to try something, I know that even if I fail completely, like I can get like three square meals and a roof over my head, right? Which I think different people, if they're in different walks of life or stages of life, if you're like working and you're like 40 and you've got like three kids that you need to put food on the table for and you're the breadwinner, it's very hard to say, why don't you take a 40% pay cut from Goldman and go to Uber, right? But I think my, my answer would be this, like if you don't try to do something, that you're really passionate about and it can be as a main job or as a side hustle, I think you'll just hate your life or hate yourself after a while and you just be miserable. And that's not good, right? And even if you have, you're 40 and you have three kids and you have to put food on the table, if you have the energy and the tenacity, you will find a way to do that side hustle that might bring you more happiness and, and then hopefully that becomes something that is full-time or something that can sustain you after, I guess. So for people who are trying to reduce how much they hate themselves... And uh, starting to explore new side hustles or start looking for businesses to run or start. What advice or resources do you feel are good steps for them to access? Good question. I mean, it's talking to people, right? Like talking to people who have done the same thing. So talking to you, talking to me. I mean, I don't do this all the time, but I take calls from people, like random people, like someone that I was doing a one of those IG life, I guess, Zoom things with a general assembly like a month or so ago where they were talking about like the bar industry in Singapore. And uh, one lady reached out after that. She's also in finance and she's like, Hey, how do you move to tech? And how do you, uh, how do you start your own business? Like I've been thinking of starting my own business too. So like case in point, right? So honestly, like reaching out to people is the best, like, or go and read a ton of ink articles or wired articles. I mean, read things that are going to inspire you one, but also give you ideas of what you can or want to do. But second, I think the only way you can do it is by two things. Either you get the experience yourself so you like dive in like head first or you ask someone and you just try and get a bit of their input and advice because it's those real life experiences that will make the difference, not the textbook learnings that you might try to do with, with this. It's very different from studying accounting or engineering or whatnot. You've had some experience, you know, buying a business. What tips would you give for people who are putting together such funds to purchase new businesses? Our accountant is the most important thing, both with acquiring the business in terms of like really understanding what the business is going through. Then second, also understanding what you want to do with the business, right? So as a small-time entrepreneur, I think the number one lesson was you need to know your numbers and you need to have an accountant. You need to have someone that you can like help you. If you're not already an accountant or whatever, or have the expertise, you want to look at the numbers because that's what's going to make or break your business. It's not about how cool your business is or how much money you can raise or what you invest in. It's at the end of the day, very black and white, right? You have to make more money than you spend. That's the only way to run a business in the long run. And so I would say that's the number one thing. I think secondly is it depends on if you're with these search funds, are you buying it as an operator or are you buying over someone and then having them operate it? Then at the end of the day, that's about how much you believe in that person, whether you can keep that person out and put in someone that you think can run it. So that second point is finding the right person or the right operator, because again, that's going to change the trajectory for your business. So one, knowing the numbers, and then two, it's the people. And then after that, everything else doesn't really matter because everything will come together if you've got the right person running it and you know what your bottom line is and not going below your bottom line. You know, just last night, I was discussing with a friend who was also exploring the idea of pursuing a search fund. And she was framing it up as a two-by-two two matrix, one x-axis being the stability of the cash flow that's coming out of business. And the other axis is your belief in your ability to turn things around and improve it versus the current trajectory. Yep. Uh, what do you think about that framework? 
Stability with cash flow depends. Like, I mean, I don't know what your friend is looking at, but it depends on what your returns are, right? I mean, stability of cash flow could be like running a print shop and just knowing that everyone like goes there to print paper, right? Stability would be great. You'd be making like $500 a month maybe. And then maybe you just pay like, I don't know, $10,000 for a business because you know in 20 months you'll get your return ROI, right? And then you just make money off of that. But if you're looking for a search fund where you want to like scale and build a business and like maybe not a billion dollar company, but even maybe like a 10 or $20 million company, then that's different, right? Then you have to look at the possibility of growth. I mean, yeah, for what's worth, there aren't like printing chains in Singapore. So your friend could try and do it. I, I just realized that they're not like big, like printing shop chains. So maybe that's a good one, right? I don't know. I think stability is important depending on how much you want to make and how much you want to grow and scale a business. That question needs to be answered before you can decide what kind of business you want to buy. Like if you want to make a lot of money in F&B, don't buy a bar. <laughs> like, I, I mean, like honestly, like the way I think about it, and I should have just bought like 50 hawker stalls. I'm not kidding. Because if you buy 50 hawker stalls and you become the meatball king of uh, Singapore, or the chicken rice king of Singapore, then your cash flow would actually be a lot better. And your cash flow would be better because one, you would have scale. Two, you would have a bigger customer base to play around with. Three, you'd be the only person selling chicken rice in Singapore. I mean, you know, as an example, right? So that's my really long answer to your question. Some people think about digital and digitization of the business they're buying as one of the key things they need to do. Do you feel like there's a big level of growth uh, or reduced costs from your perspective? It can be. I mean, I'm very fixated right now on F&B, unfortunately. I need to like get out of this thought process right now. But I mean, even with F&B, yeah, tech can help, right? I mean, if you can automate how you do your chicken rice or your or be able to cook in scale. And when we see tech, it's not even like tech in terms of ordering systems, but tech in terms of scalability of how you cook your chickens or how you sous vide your meat or whatnot, right? I mean, that definitely does make a difference. I mean, I've seen this one restaurant or I guess like takeout place called Chalong at Guaco Tower. They have like two or three locations now. And I've seen how they do it. And I'm super impressed. They have a bunch of Innova sous vide sticks and they sous vide the meat and then they stick in the grill and then they season it and that's it. And it's amazing. I'm like, wow, I should have thought of this. But they're using a simple technological advancement, right? Like maybe 10 years ago, they would never have been able to do it because a sous machine was a few thousand dollars. But because Innova came as a technological advancement and made a sous machine 200 or $300, their startup cost is now $3,000 or $4,000 for those four sticks, as opposed to buying like three or four machines that might cost them like $20,000, right? So I think technological investments, a lot of the time, people think it has to be cool and sexy where you build the latest app or you yeah, change the world. But there's so many little technological advancements that you can make or invest in that can make your business or a business so much better and faster and efficient. How do the tools collide, right? Because, you know, you're like Grab, you're launching financial products on a national level and, you know, you have such expertise there with the growing wave of fintech and the teams that you lead for Grab. And then how does that intersect with your life as a owner of Jekyll and Hyde? I have to say I've been lucky, I've been blessed. My teams have been quite understanding and supportive of me having the bar at the same time. I mean, they've never really like faulted me for that. So they're actually really supportive of the bar and all that. I mean, at the same time, I also just have to make sure I'm doing my work properly and doing it enough, right? Which means I just have to like sleep less and uh, even if I sleep the right amount, just be like working from the moment I wake up till I 
I'm done in the evening, right? Or at night. But I don't know. I think I like being stimulated that way. I like that mental stimulation. And so like being able to think about it. So, I mean, for what it's worth, when you're a grab, when you're at a company, you're always going to be stifled to a certain extent because there are barriers or boundaries that you have to be constrained by. But when you're doing your own business and your own side hustle, the world is your oyster, at least from an imagination perspective. The bar is satisfied that half of my brain, right? As opposed to the other half that is like, oh, let me figure out how to build something at scale. Running a bar that has a million plus turnover versus like trying to help a business that is trying to do like 100 or 200 million or 300 million dollar turnover is a very different story. Amazing. One last question. If you could go back 10 years in time to visit your younger self, what advice would you give yourself? Oh, just buy Amazon and Netflix stock and then be done with it. Dude, I'm telling you, I'd be a, like a multimillionaire right now if I just put all of my savings into uh, those two stocks. Uh, which I had like, I bought Netflix at 60, sold it at 70, was like, wow, I made like 15%. Awesome. Then they like stock. This was like even before like the stock splits and all that. That is my advice. I would have given myself the advice, put my money in Amazon and Netflix stock and Apple stock, and then just enjoyed life. I would have retired by now and been like chilling. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeremy. Appreciate the time. Always a good chat.